join with me in reading Matthew 11, 1 through 19. When Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. As these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there is not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to the other children and say, We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. I, this may not come as much of a surprise to anyone, but I, I love the Bible. <laughs> like, I love to study the Bible. I love that you pay me to study the Bible. Sometimes I think, wow, this is just too cool of a setup. Uh, I go in my office, I spend 20 hours doing a book report, I come report on my findings, and you guys pay me for this. This is awesome. Uh, I, love, I love doing the study for this passage. It's, it's, a, it's kind of long. There's a lot in there. You've got to turn your brains on this morning. This is, you sort of have to, you know, reach, stretch your neck out to reach to the top of this tree, okay? Um, but there is, I think this goes as one unity, still talking about John the Baptist there at the end. Um, and I hope, you know, Lord blesses you as much as he blessed me in studying this one. I enjoyed studying this one as much as I've enjoyed studying for one in a long time. I, I love, when I study, I, I love to see God's love poured out through the scriptures. I love to see his clear plan of salvation uh, poured out in the scriptures. But I also love just how, just how real and how honest 
the Bible is, how that nothing is sugar-coated, that, that God has nothing to hide in here. And the reason I bring that up for this passage is um, I love when the Bible shows us faithful, believing people struggling in their faith, struggling with like a, a semi-broken spirit. You know what a you know what a dark night of the soul is? It's kind of the in the title of my sermon this morning. It's not a biblical phrase, but it's a biblical concept. The, the phrase is ripped off from a 16th century poem, and it's a name. Dark night of the soul is an attempt to put a name to a condition many of us have felt where all of a sudden, or maybe maybe not so all of a sudden, but a believing person is sort of suddenly struggling in their faith. Where suddenly a, a faithful person is considering things like, maybe I've been wrong about all this. Like maybe God's, maybe there's nobody out there. Maybe God's not real. Maybe Jesus isn't the only way. Maybe he's just one of many. Or maybe God doesn't care. Maybe God has turned his back on me. You ever been someplace like that? emotionally, spiritually. If you have, if nothing else, you're in good company in the Bible. Today it's John the Baptist, but we could look and see many people in the scriptures go through something like that. King David wrote about several times where he felt like God had abandoned him. Elijah was so depressed he wanted to die. Jeremiah was called, was nicknamed the weeping prophet for a reason. The Bible doesn't hide stories like this from us. It shares stories like this over and over and over. And I'm so glad it does. It's encouraging me to see some of the giants of the faith go through times like this. The reason God doesn't hide these from us is because God is not threatened by our doubts. God's not threatened by our depression. God's not threatened when our spirits are crushed. He is not less real when someone feels like he's less real. He's not less caring when someone feels like he's less caring. He's not less sovereign when people feel like things have spun out of control. So over and over, God shows us times where people felt like that, and then he shows us how he walks them through that on the other side, so that when we are there, we've got something in our hearts, in our brains that says, hang on, David went through this, hang on, Elijah went through this, John the Baptist went through this. In today's passage, the dark night of the soul that we see is, is John the Baptist. We don't see a real description of him. He just asks one question, but we can tell he's, a, he's at, a, at a dark spot where doubts and fears have started to get the best of John the Baptist. Now, if we're going to, before we can understand this passage, though, we have to know a bit about John the Baptist. You just have to. You have to so I'm going to give you the, a real short Cliff Notes version of who he is. 
If you want to know more, uh, we met him in Matthew chapter 3. You can go through our website to our sermons page, click through to the SoundCloud page, find the sermons on Matthew 3, and I preached more about John the Baptist back then. It was July 9th and 16th, if you're interested in learning more. Today, here's what I want you to know about John the Baptist before we start. John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin, something like a second cousin. And he had a hugely, massively popular ministry along the banks of the Jordan River. And he, he was a prophet. He dressed like a prophet. He looked like a prophet. He preached like a prophet. The Old Testament predicted someone like John the Baptist would come. He himself is, is a fulfillment of prophecy. He was a prophet, but he fulfills prophecy. The Old Testament said before Messiah showed up, he would be preceded by a forerunner, a herald, someone who would prepare the way for the Messiah and point him out. There he is. That's John. That's what John did. He prepared the way for Jesus's ministry and he pointed at Jesus and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the one. He's greater than me. That's John the Baptist. John's ministry was based on calling people to repent. This is how he prepared the way for Jesus' ministry. He called people, he challenged people to repent. And by repent, I mean he challenged people to change their mind in a way that worked its way out in a change in behavior. And John challenged people to repent about two things. First, he challenged people to repent of sin. Stop seeing your sin as something other than sin. See your sin the way God sees your sin. And when you change your mind, that will lead to changed behavior. And then also, and maybe even more importantly, John challenged people to repent of their righteousness. And here's what that means. John was preparing the way for Jesus by calling people not toward the temple in Jerusalem, but away from the temple in Jerusalem, out into the wilderness, in the desert, to get baptized and identify into a new ministry. And he was asking them to repent, to change their mind about what made someone righteous before God. Because Jews for eons had believed, for me to be okay with God, I've got to go into the tabernacle or in the temple and I've got to do animal sacrifices and I've got to do all these rituals. And John was saying, I'm announcing a new way. You've got to repent of your idea that that's what makes you okay with God. And they pointed people toward Jesus as the Messiah. And that's, that's John the Baptist. The last thing we were told about John the Baptist in the book of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 4, we were just told he was arrested. And so where we pick up today, John's been sitting in a prison cell under King Herod for more or less a year. And in that prison cell, we catch a glimpse of depression, of confusion, of doubt creeping into John the Baptist. We see it. We don't see a real description of him or or what's going on in his brain. We just see John call some of his disciples who come visit him in prison, his students, and they send, or Jesus, excuse me, let me try that one more time. John tells his disciples students to take a question to Jesus. And in this question, we can see that John's really struggling in his faith. It comes in verse 3. Here's the question. Go ask Jesus, 
Are you the one who is to come? Or should we look for another? Are you the one we've been waiting for? Or should we keep looking for someone else? Here's why that's, we can tell this is a significant struggle going on in John's heart and mind. John knew who Jesus was. And I mean John knew that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior. For time's sake, I'm not going to go into all the evidence that John had, but just take my word for it on this. Read the beginnings of the book of John. God made absolutely abundantly clear to John the Baptist that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. He had all the evidence he would ever need. And his whole ministry was to point to Jesus and say, that's the one we've been waiting on. Fast forward about a year, though. John's sitting in a prison cell under the threat of execution and doubts and fear and depression starts to creep in around the evidence. And suddenly John's going, you know, am I really sure I saw the evidence I thought I saw? Here's what's causing John's doubts. If we would go back into Matthew chapter 3, and we're not going to, but... John was preaching about Messiah. He was telling people to repent. You better change your mind about what makes you okay with God because you're going to need the Messiah when he shows up. And he would tell people, like he told the leaders of Israel, to repent because when Messiah comes, the Old Testament says he's bringing judgment with him. You don't want to reject Messiah because he's going to bring judgment upon you. And he said it this way, John the Baptist did, back in Matthew chapter 3, the, the top of the screen, he's looking right at some religious leaders who he knows don't like his message and won't accept Jesus. And he says, even now, the axe is laid at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What he was telling those guys is, you better change your mind about the Messiah, because if you reject the Messiah, he's going to cut you down in a terrible judgment. Again, fast forward one year. John's been sitting in a prison for 12 months. And he has, and these doubts start coming in like, you know, if you were the Messiah, Jesus, where's that judgment I was telling everybody about? <laughs> like, where's the axe, man? Because the bad guys are still out there running around. And I'm in here about to get my head chopped off. And John knows the Old Testament scriptures. He knows that about Messiah, he was, he's going to be a judge. He's going to bring judgment on those who reject him. And then Isaiah 61.1 says this about Messiah. This is Messiah actually speaking 700 years before Jesus showed up. The Lord has chosen me, Messiah says. He has comm- he's commissioned me to encourage the poor, to help the broken part- brokenhearted, and check this out. He's commissioned me to decree the release of captives and the freeing of prisoners. Think John ever thought about that verse, 12 months in the clink? John has to be sitting there going, man, if you are Messiah, cousin, I'm feeling pretty captive right now. Why won't you get to that whole release of the captives part? And if you won't do that, does that mean you're not the one? That's what, that's what has John confused. That's what has John 
doubting. He's had, on one hand, he's seen overwhelming evidence that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior. But there's these things the Old Testament said the Savior was going to do that he's not doing. And it leaves John saying, you know, are are you the one who's supposed to save us or not? Because to be real honest, Jesus, I'm not feeling all that saved right now in this prison. Again, have you ever felt like that? If you have, you're in good company. In verses 4 through 6, Jesus sends an answer back to John the Baptist. The first two verses, Jesus gives a list of stuff that Isaiah the prophet said Messiah would do that Jesus obviously has done. Verse 4, Jesus answered them. This is John's disciples. Go tell John what you hear and see. And here's some stuff. This stuff in verse 5 is cherry-picked out of the book of Isaiah. It doesn't, it's not a quote of one passage in Isaiah. Isaiah. Jesus takes this and this and this and this out of Isaiah. He says, go tell John that you see and hear this. The blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news, news proclaimed to them. That's a list of stuff only Messiah could do. And the, the Old Testament said Messiah would do it and Jesus has done it. I think the, what, what Jesus wants John to grasp or hold on to is go remind John of all the stuff that the, the Old Testament said I would do and I have done and only I can do it. And, and here's why. Jesus wants John to focus on what he has done rather than focus on what he hasn't. Focus on, if Jesus could do this list of incredible stuff, do you think he's not strong enough to do the rest? Or do you think he just hasn't done it yet? So here's what's, here's what's messing John up. John didn't understand that there would be a delay in the fulfillment of some of the promises concerning Messiah. During Jesus' first ministry on earth, I don't know if you knew this or not, but during Jesus' first ministry on earth, he did not do, he did not fulfill everything the scriptures promised Messiah would do and fulfill. Did you know that? We're still waiting on some of it. And John, in fact, all the Old Testament prophets, did not know there would be a delay in that fulfillment. Let me show you one delay. This is kind of my go-to example because it's so easy to see. Isaiah chapter 9. We read this at Christmas time sometimes. Uh, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. There'll be no end to the increase of his government on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on forevermore. Do you see the delay in fulfillment there? A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. Has that happened? Yes. Jesus was born. Has, has there ever been a period where he was in control of the governments of the, of the world the way this describes it, where there's peace and justice from that point on forevermore? No. We're still waiting on that. John thought that was all coming at once. And I, as John is sitting there like, if you're a Messiah, where's your judgment? Where's your reign? Where's the justice? Why are the bad guys winning? And so John's problem is a lack of information. Here's what John didn't understand. 
He knew Messiah was going to be a great judge, and he is. He will be. But in Jesus' first advent, the first time he came to earth, he did not come to pour out God's judgment on the earth. You know why he came? He came for the judgment the people of the earth deserve to be poured out upon him. Again, if Jesus comes the first time and does not die for anyone's sin, he can set up the kingdom. The problem is none of us get in. It's going to be a pretty lonely kingdom. John doesn't know. He knows all the prophecies. He doesn't know about the delay. And that delay is confusing to John because he doesn't have all the information. He doesn't understand. How many times does not understanding cause us confusion, depression, doubt? This is the cause of our doubts and confusions as well. Like we see part of God's plan, but we can't see all he's doing, and it doesn't make sense to us, and how could this be okay? It's exactly what John is going through. And that's why the last little bit of information that Jesus gives to John the Baptist is so vital for all of us. Verse 6, Jesus gives John his very own little beatitude. Remember the beatitudes? Blessed are those who mourn, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus says in verse 6 to John, blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. And your Bible might translate that a little bit differently. Blessed are those who doesn't stumble on account of me, something like that. Here's what Jesus is saying to his cousin. First, he says, focus on what I have done. Let that give you confidence that I will do everything that I'm supposed to do eventually. If I can do this list of stuff, I will do the stuff I haven't done yet. And then he says this, my cousin John, I know you want to be blessed of God. I know you have a blessing in mind that you want. You want let out of that prison. The the problem is John is saying, hey, if if you're really God, you will do what I want you to do. You'll let me out of here. That's the blessing I want, I need If you won't bless me like that, maybe I'll look for a different Messiah who will. Jesus said, John, do you want real blessing? Do you want really to be blessed by God? Stop looking for a different Messiah for a better plan than mine. I'm the one. You have plenty of evidence to support that. And real blessing comes from staying in the boat with Jesus. Even if you find someone else who can do for you what I say no to, there's not blessing in that ultimately, John. Blessing comes from walking with me and letting me walk with you through what I've allowed. Now, at this point in the passage, at the end of verse 6, the passage switches because his conversation with John the Baptist is over. The letter's like sealed up and mailed off. John's students go back to John. And the rest of this is Jesus with the crowds of people. I think John's disciples ask Jesus this very publicly. And maybe there are people here who hear this going, holy smokes, if John the Baptist is having doubts that Jesus is the one. And so the rest of this, Jesus turns around to the crowds and uses this as a, as a teaching moment. And i got to go through a lot of this fairly quickly. 
In verses 7 through 10, Jesus asks the crowd a rhetorical question, then he answers it. And his question is this. Hey, everybody, why did everybody go out and see John when he was ministering on the banks of the Jordan River? What did people go out to see? That's what he asks. And then Jesus gets really sarcastic. He says, did people go out just to see the scenery, the reeds blowing in the wind? Is that why they went out there? Or he could be saying, did they go out to see John like he was a a weakling who who, uh, changed his mind with prevalent opinion? No, they didn't go out for that. Did people go out in the wilderness to see a put-together rich dude? Jesus, no. Why did people go out to the wilderness? They went out because John was a prophet. Israel hadn't had a prophet for hundreds of years. Word starts to spread that there's this guy out in the wilderness. He looks like Elijah. He preaches like Elijah. He eats like Elijah. He challenges Israel's religious leaders like Elijah. We think he's a prophet. And it's like, kind of like going to the zoo. Everybody thinks, this is our only chance. We get a chance to see a real life prophet in his natural habitat. Let's go out. Jesus says, that's why everybody went out there. And Jesus, throughout this passage, continually puts his stamp of approval on John. He's a prophet. He's the prophet. He's the greatest prophet. He's the one that had to come before me. Uh, Elijah is going to show up before Jesus comes again. And Jesus said, if, if, if you catch it, if you believe this, he fulfilled Elijah's mission this time also. He was a prophet. He was the greatest Old Testament prophet because he's the one who would point out the Messiah. And then Jesus presents a riddle. In verse 11, this this riddle gets to the, the heart of the importance of this passage. Jesus says that John is the most important, the greatest prophet of all time, but he's sitting in a prison cell about to get his head cut off. Spoiler alert, that really happens to John. We'll see that later in the book. So how can he be great in God's eyes and that happen to him? And then Jesus says, well, here's the riddle. See if you can catch the paradox here. Verse 11 Jesus says, I tell you the truth, among those born of women, so among everybody who's ever been born, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. Do you see the paradox there? Here's what Jesus says. Of everybody who's been born, save for Jesus himself, of everybody who's ever been born, John is the greatest. But everybody that gets in the kingdom, they'll all be greater than John. You see how that like literally has a hard time being possible? Because everybody who gets in the kingdom will be somebody who's been born. And on one hand, Jesus says they're all greater than John. On the other hand, John, Jesus says John's greater than all of them. Catch that? That's the riddle. The question is, how can this be true? Here's how. How John can be called the greatest person ever. John is greatest. John was at the pinnacle of humanity in terms of illumination, understanding. And here's what I mean. There was a point. All the prophets of the Old Testament, of whom John was the last, all of them looked forward to Messiah, but were fairly to partly clueless about what his ministry would be like, who he would be, when he would show up. Right? There was confusion of, as to whether or not there was only one. 
or if there's more than one person being talked about in some of these various passages. John, though, was ahead of them all because John looked at Jesus and said, that's him. He's the only prophet that didn't have to wait, didn't have to wonder. He, there was a point in John the Baptist's life where he was the only living, walking, breathing individual who knew all of who Jesus was. And so in terms of information and illumination, John was the greatest. that makes sense? So how could the least person in the kingdom of heaven be greater than John, though? See if I can explain this. If we've learned anything about John in this passage is that he's struggling, right? He's confused. He didn't know about the, the gap in the fulfillment. He, God's not acting the way John thinks God ought to act. And he's confused and he's depressed and he's hurting and he's doubting. And in this passage, well, here's why he's confused. Verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist all the way through today, actually, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. Bad people get to do bad things to the king and his followers. Isn't that true? Still going on? That was confusing to John. Um, But Jesus says in this passage, listen, kids, it's not always going to be this way. I know you're confused. I know you can't understand what's going on. Someday, just wait till I bring the fullness of my kingdom. And at that point, the worst Bible student, the least intelligent, the least perceptive person in the kingdom will be even greater than John the Baptist is in terms of illumination and and, and knowledge and understanding of what God was doing through redemptive history. Does that make sense? John the Baptist, Jesus says, is the smartest. He knows the most. And he is struggling and hurting and he's doubting. But when I come back and set up my full kingdom that we are not living in right now, when I come back and set that up, everybody then, including John, will know way more than the great John the Baptist knew during his life. This is Jesus' way of saying, hang in there. I pr- you don't understand right now, but I promise you will. Someday you will see. It won't always be like this. There'll be a, there's coming a day when no one will be confused about why the bad guys are winning. You know why? Because the bad guys won't be winning anymore. Every, right will be, every wrong will be righted. Justice will be served. No more tears, no more disease, no more fear. It won't always be like this. And at the end of the passage, Jesus encourages that crowd not to make the mistake most people make concerning John the Baptist and especially Jesus. Here's four verses I did not understand even a little until about three weeks ago when I studied for this sermon. (laughs) And the reason I didn't understand it is because I had no idea what Jesus was talking about. I knew he was compared to, what shall I compare this generation? Jesus talks a lot about this generation. That's his way of talking about prevalent society, the way most people are. To what shall I compare this generation? They're like children sitting where they normally play. 
calling out to one another, and I had no idea what any of this meant. We played the flute for you, yet you did not dance. We wailed in mourning, yet you did not weep. Anybody know what that means? Because if you do, you're way ahead of where I was three weeks ago. I can promise you that. Luckily, all the scholars who know first century Israeli history tell us what this is about. Here's the way this made sense to me the best. You understand that when kids play, for all of human history, when kids play, they mimic adults a lot of the time, right? When you were little, you played house. You played school. You played mechanic. You played farmer. You played whatever, right? You mimicked adults. Well, apparently in the first century, two popular games, they played wedding and they played funeral, which is a little creepy and a little weird. I get it. But apparently they did. And here's what, here's what John is saying. He's comparing him and John the Baptist as two kids, just regular kids, and they start one game and nobody plays along. They start playing wedding music. And the kids are like, we don't want to play that. So like, all right, well, we'll do something different. We'll play a funeral dirge and everybody's supposed to mourn and we'll pretend like we're having a funeral. And all the kids are like, well, we don't want to play that. We don't want to play what you want to play. We'll play the music around here. We'll pick the game around here. And then you get in line with us. And Jesus says, that's how people treat me. That's how people treat me. They don't want to march to the music I play. They want me to hop to and march to the music they play. You know what? That's what John the Baptist was doing from inside that prison, isn't it? Why aren't you, why aren't you releasing me? Why aren't you setting me free? That's what I want. It would be fine. So let's go. Or should I find someone else who will do that for me? Jesus says, don't make that mistake. And he says, and it didn't matter which way we go. John the Baptist was so separate, so conservative. He didn't, he was very careful. He wasn't ever around alcohol. He, was, he tried to stay very separate from society. And people said, oh, he's way too weird. We reject that guy. Jesus says, so I come along. I go to banquets. I go eat with tax collectors and sinners. And they say, oh, he's a drunk. He's a, he's a glutton. We reject him. Jesus said, that's not the real reason. The real reason they reject me is not is because they don't want a Lord. They want to play the music and make God dance along. That's the way people treat me. Be careful. Don't make that mistake. And at the end, Jesus says, but wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. And here's what Jesus is saying. Someday, dancing to the music I lay down will be always be shown as the, uh, the, the wisest course of action. Staying in the boat with Jesus will be vindicated as the wisest course of action. It doesn't always feel like that. It feels like there's smarter things I could be doing. Eventually, it will be shown as the wisest course of action. All right, that's the passage. Did you catch all that? That was quick. There's a lot in there. Thanks for sticking with me. Because there's so much, I wanted to, I wanted to boil this down to, I think, three, three main lessons Jesus was teaching 
um, in this passage and Matthew is presenting to us. First one, and I've saved some time so I can discuss each of these for a minute. First one, from this passage we learn doubt and rejection are not the same thing. Doubt is not the same thing as rejection. That's a really important thing to carry around with you. During this passage, John is sitting in a prison cell. He's depressed. He's scared. Um, He's probably getting the feeling he really is going to be executed because Jesus doesn't seem like he's going to step in and save the day. And because he didn't have all the information about God's plans, he started to have some real doubts. And he goes straight to Jesus with real doubts. I mean, think about this. He sent a note to Jesus that said, I'm not sure you're the one anymore. And that's going at, that's going at Jesus strong with your doubts, right? You want to be comforted this morning? You want some comfort? Read back through this passage and check out how Jesus responds to John when John says, I'm not sure I can believe in you anymore. You know what Jesus doesn't do? He doesn't berate him. How dare you say who I am and who I'm not? After all I've done for you, if it wasn't for me, you know what would have happened to you a long time ago? There's none of that. He sends a note back that says, Cousin, just focus on what I have done for you instead of putting all your focus on what I haven't done for you. Really helpful. And... When you focus on all the stuff I have done, that should give you confidence that I will do everything that was promised that I would do. He encourages them. And then you know what he does next? He turns around to this huge crowd of people and says, hey, you want to know who I think is the greatest guy who ever lived? John the Baptist. He's the greatest. Even though he just doubted Jesus. John's doubt did not cancel his greatness in Jesus' eyes, did they? John's doubt did not make Jesus love John less, did they? No. Because Jesus is compassionate. Jesus says, I know the plan, and that's why I'm okay going along with it, because I see all the information. And he understands John doesn't know everything I know. And I understand how that can be confusing. That can be difficult. It can see, I can understand how that could seem like I'm not who I said I was. Just hang in there. Don't let what you don't know overpower what you do know. Don't let what you haven't understood overpower what you have understood. Don't let what hasn't come yet Take your mind off what has and what's been proven and what we can know. Here's what we know. Jesus loved you enough while you were at your worst to die under the penalty your sins deserved. If he would do that for you at your worst, what would make him like run out on you now? Doubt is not what cancels your relationship with Jesus. It doesn't. Doubt's natural because we don't know everything. Questions are natural because we don't know everything. 
Doubt is not the opposite of faith. Rejection is the opposite of faith. We'll see that in a couple of weeks when the Pharisees and the scribes point at Jesus and say, Satan is the one who does his power. He does all he does through Satan. That's rejection. And Jesus is going to say, there's no going back from that sin. All right, so the first thing we learned, doubt is not the same thing as rejection. You can go toward God with your doubts. He has nothing to hide. When you start doubting God, if you go toward him and you go toward the Bible, you're not going to suddenly turn the page and discover he's not real and he's not in control and he doesn't love you. Go toward him like John did and you'll discover he is in control, he is real, and he does love you. Second thing we learn is kind of at the end there. I think most rejection of Jesus, at least in our culture, where people have heard about Jesus, most rejection of Jesus is really the rejection of authority. Here's what I mean by that. Most people who hear the gospel and understand the words, who say, no thanks, not for me, they may give a list of reasons why they really don't believe. Well, I can't believe in a God who would you know, allow all the atrocities of the Old Testament. I couldn't believe in a God who would allow this to happen. Oh, no, so that's not for me. And they may give you a list of reasons. What Jesus said today, you know what the prevalent reason is? They don't want anybody being the boss of them. They're not, they're not going to let God or anybody else tell them what they can and can't do with their life. Be patient with people like that and be willing to admit when you're a people like that. Rebellion can stick its head up in believing people too. Make sure my reasons for not doing what what God wants me to do aren't just simply because I don't want him telling me what to do. That's that's the, the, the problem of this generation. Guess what? This generation is still around. And finally, because Jesus accomplished what he did during his first advent, his first ministry on earth, we can be confident he will accomplish everything the Bible promises he will accomplish. Jesus really did. All the miracles we've read about in in the book of Matthew. It's what he sent back to John, right? The blind got sight, the deaf hear, the mute speak, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the dead are raised. Then Jesus did this. He predicted over and over again, we're going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to beat me up. They're going to humiliate me. They're going to kill me. They're going to bury me. And three days later, I'm going to rise again. Guess what? He did that too. And if he can pull that off, there's nothing he can't do. He will do, Jesus keeps his promises. So when he promises, there's going to be a day where you understand. There's going to be a day when the wrongs are righted. We can depend on that. We look at what he did do faithfully, and that gives us confidence to believe he will do what he said he will do. Amen? His kingdom is coming. I can't wait. Like, I'm ready this afternoon, Lord. I mean, I sort of want to take a nap, but if you want to come back first, it's okay. When he comes, we'll understand it will all have been worth it. There'll be no more tears. There'll be no more confusion. There'll be no more bad guys. Just hang in there just a little longer. You can do it. He never promised it would be easy. He promised it would be hard. But he also promised that he would begin a good work in you. 
will continue to perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He was born, he died, he rose again, but we're still waiting for his day. That day, that was like our day. He did that for us. He's coming back for his day. And he's bringing us with him. It's going to be awesome. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for writing in your word these the stories like this one about when believing faithful people struggled with why and what's going on and how could you, Lord? Thank you for letting us see a reminder that you're not, you know, you're not thwarted by such doubts. You're not uh, undone. You're not threatened. You're not less real. God, I I pray again like I did at the beginning for everyone here that truth like this would begin to make our spirits buoyant so that when life happens in ways we would never have liked or planned, it would not make us, you know, reject you or walk away from you or, or blame you, but it would just make us hold on a little tighter, a little longer waiting for you to do what you will do where you right every wrong and dry every tear and heal every disease and throw death itself into the abyss we love you lord we long for that make our spirits buoyant we pray in jesus name amen